You're listening to an Economy Matters podcast produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The Federal Open Market Committee concluded a two-day meeting earlier today. The pace of job today. growth has been strong. Downside risks to the outlook for the, the economy. number of Fed officials. The shadow banking system is large. We've come a long way since the darkest day of the financial crisis. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Economy Matters podcast. I'm Tom Heintjes, managing editor of the Atlanta Fed's Economy Matters magazine. And today we're talking about trends in workforce development with Stuart Andresen, an economic policy analyst in the Atlanta Fed's Community and Economic Development Department. Stuart is the editor of a recently published book, Models for Labor Market Intermediaries, which examines a number of case studies from around the country and the world. Thanks for making time for being with us today, Stuart. Happy to be here. Stuart, workforce development has been a topic of a great deal of discussion lately, and your book contributes a good deal to the conversation. But the concept of workforce development is hardly a new one, is it? No, it really dates back decades, and it's, I guess, coming up on nearly its uh, 50th anniversary. You know, it has ties back to the Great Society. It has ties back to even the, the Works Progress Administration and some public employment programs. Really what we kind of think of as the workforce development system of today started in 1973 with the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which had kind of characteristics of what we would call today's workforce development system in terms of job training, but it actually still had some of the older, more public employment programs that came out of the the New Deal, including government and nonprofit employment. You know, there's been variations of it since then that have kind of change things in terms of the program. Today, what we have is called the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. It was passed in 2014 and is really just becoming law. And it's what we really kind of consider the the federal workforce development program that funds workforce development boards across the country and states and local communities. You know, there have been economic developments like uh, when the cars came along, the buggy whip manufacturers suffered. There have always been these kinds of upheavals and disruptions. What gave rise to this in the modern era? You know, it kind of comes back to changes in the labor market, the advancement of technology. Now, so some of the things that you talked about obviously caused big changes in the labor market. Even the advancement of cars really changed the way that workers worked. It kind of invented the modern production line factory. But things that have happened today, including kind of the growth of computer and kind of the acceleration of change has really changed not only workforce development, but education into something that's a lifelong endeavor. And so workers are going to be engaged in the system at various points of their careers. Your book makes clear the changes in workforce development, but um, has workforce development's role in the economy evolved as the economy itself has changed? Yes. In in some ways, there you know there's a higher bar now for for employment. You're going to need really some basic skills in terms of in terms of getting a job. One of the things that's actually happened with that is that the the way that workforce development organizations actually work has not completely changed, but there's been really a lot of evidence that things are beginning to change. Where employers are going to be much more involved in developing training programs. That's one of the things that in the book we found to really be a best practice was a close relationship with employers. They obviously have a vested interest in a a trained and capable workforce. Yeah, I mean, so to the point that a lot of people that have been interested in the workforce development system are actually now calling kind of the, the state of the art in workforce development a dual customer approach where job seekers and employers are really considered equal clients to 
training organizations. Right. Stuart, why are workforce development initiatives not more numerous, uh, given the widespread need for a workforce suited to modern needs? Is it purely because of economic constraints? So I actually have a slightly different answer to that question. I actually think that workforce development initiatives often seem pretty scarce, but there's there's actually a lot of investment from, but it's just from a lot of different sources that probably aren't enough from like one source. So there's federal workforce and innovation and opportunity act money. There's money that comes from Pell grants and student loans that goes a lot towards job training, not just going to college. But there's private and philanthropic efforts to develop training programs, and there's small, even you know, just kind of voluntary training programs, employer-led training, union training. So it's pervasive, but there's not necessarily kind of one centralized area where someone can really get their hands around the scope of everything that's happening. So that it kind of creates a different challenge, which is in coordination and figuring out how there can be scale. Because with so many providers, some are better than others. And so it's, it's really kind of a challenge of, I think, coordination and scale. So have the sums devoted to workforce development grown over time? Or is there a relative baseline constancy? It's, it's hard to figure out. They, they change a lot. So we talked a little bit about the federal funding, which is down quite significantly. Even since the 80s, there's an estimate that it's in terms of an inflation-adjusted investment from the federal government into whatever line of the federal workforce system, so workforce boards in particular, is about 83% lower than it used to be, which is astounding since 1980. And that estimate was a a change between 1980 and and 2008. So it's fallen to what, the private sector, local and regional governments to to make up? Exactly. And Pell Grants and and student, and, and it's fallen to the Higher Education Act. So Pell Grants have doubled in the last few years from about $15 billion a year to about 30. So that's pretty significant change, but it really changes the venue in which workforce development can happen sometimes. Right. The place has to be able to accept student loans or, or be engaged in kind of local and independent fundraising. Right. Stuart, the book you edited concerns, among other things, a discussion of some of the most promising practices to prepare workers for the labor market. In your opinion, what practices have, in fact, had the most success, and and do they have common denominators? So I would actually say that it's not so much common practices, but common foundations that they all have. The practices play out really differently depending on the local context. But the foundations that they all have is that they're linked to their local labor market. They're tied to in-demand jobs that pay pretty good wages. They meet the, the really the skill needs of employers and job seekers. And there's really a, a much more significant role for the business community in, in a lot of these programs. But, but it actually plays out differently in different places. Like the, there's a case on Cleveland and the Cuyahoga County WIB that took on almost a, a job placement strategy where they were working to build connections with employers on specific jobs that they actually had open, where they looked through the people that they'd been training and said, hey, we saw that you're advertising for that job and really kind of playing a placement role. A collective education organizations, philanthropies, and foundations in central Louisiana worked to understand some of the needs for certain industries and actually kind of really tie that into the traditional 
K to 12 and and post secondary education programs and and work on soft skills. So right. it plays out really differently. It might look like a very different organization, but they were kind of working from the same place. Right. How important is it, Stuart, to draw a distinction between private sector workforce development efforts and those with government involvement? Are are the approaches different? Successful programs do similar things, but they operate in different environments. The government-based programs have, like you would expect, a certain set of constraints on them. They have to meet the guidelines and the legislation that funds them. And this might be the the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act organizations. It might even be the Pell Grant organizations, in that the Pell Grant organizations can only Pell Grants can only be spent at certain institutions. The same way that workforce boards have you know kind of specific boundaries. They can only spend a certain amount of money on youth that are still in school because right. those youth are served by the education system. Private efforts don't have that same level of kind of boundaries or, or restrictions or reporting on them, but they, they're likely to face different donor-driven requirements. They might only be able to fund programs that lead to employment at a certain employer or something like that if, right. if the employer was the, the funder. Right. Well, we've been discussing the, the various levels of effort involved in workforce development. What challenges are involved in coordinating these efforts of various players, different levels of government, technical schools, the private sector, et cetera, so that the right hand knows what the left is doing? Well, I think you hit it on the on the head that it's really, really difficult to get all of these people together. I would um, imagine. Because you're, you're ranging not only with a whole bunch of different organizations, but different organizations that have different rules and different even motivations. The smaller organizations are probably facing different challenges than larger organizations. And so it's, it's a diverse group that has similar goals. One of the things that, that we found that's, that's helpful is, is figuring out how all of these organizations can play into an effort that makes a difference on, on things that they agree on, which is typically promoting better employment for people that are looking to move up and supporting the local economy in terms of making sure that the skills are right for employers. Let's bring the conversation a little closer to home if, if we can. How does the Southeast compare with other regions of the U.S. in terms of workforce development and, and why? You know, it's, it's difficult to say how different it is. I mean, there are things that we know that are, are historically different about the Southeast. We don't have unions that are as strong as other parts of the country right. just because of the way that our history has played out. So that means that there's, there's probably a little bit different but context that people are working in, but it's not necessarily completely different. We know that there are unions in the South, and they play a huge role in training workers across the whole Southeast. There is a huge focus, though, on workforce development. The Southeast in a lot of places is growing quite a bit. In other places, not as much, but that's a different workforce development challenge. So I think that all of the places, whether it's growing and urban or more you know, kind of steady state and rural, they're, they're working on, on trying to build skills for different reasons. I think there's a huge entrepreneurial spirit and that a lot of organizations are starting to think differently. We've seen some really promising cases out of Nashville and Birmingham and Atlanta and Miami, really across the district that we cover in the Southeast. 
but it's it's difficult to say. I would say that you know from a lot of the models that we've seen, the Southeast isn't late to the game, but they're not necessarily early. But they are really able to really start to. They're start. We're starting to see a lot of kind of new, exciting things happening. Stuart, your book discusses workforce development efforts across the entire U.S., but I wanted to uh, discuss a couple of them in the Southeast. In your book, several years ago, some healthcare employers in the Nashville area began having a hard time finding qualified employees. Healthcare is a growing sector everywhere, of course, so I have to imagine that this sort of situation is being encountered elsewhere. But how did the Nashville area deal with its workforce development need in this case? Sure, sure. In Nashville, really, much of the concern was not only on on healthcare positions, but actually healthcare information technology positions. So it's it's really a growing field as medical records become digitized, as as hospitals are you know uh, processing prescriptions to local drugstores by computer rather than picking up the phone or writing actually writing out a prescription and handing it to someone. So this was a challenge not only for the actual hospitals in Nashville, but a lot of the, the hospital management companies in the area that have just grown there, that are, that are managing networks of, of hospitals across the country. What they did is they actually set up what I would call, um, you know, kind of brain trusts for the healthcare industry in Nashville. They, they got a collection of business leaders that that formed what they called skill panels to help inform educators and trainers to to understand what was happening to kind of get ahead of data and say you know these are the things that we're planning for we're planning on these types of changes so we think that you know you might be able to match your education and training to some of these changes they actually did this not only with healthcare but they did it in advanced manufacturing as oh, well. interesting yeah. Uh, Stuart, one chapter in the book focuses on manufacturing employees in North Carolina. And uh, having grown up in North Carolina, I can attest to the fact that that state's economy has changed dramatically in the span of a few decades. Major employers used to include textiles, tobacco, and furniture manufacturing, but their presence today is, is greatly diminished. So when advanced manufacturers wanted to set up shop there, what sort of workforce needs did they encounter? Well, one of the big challenges in a place like North Carolina was that the way that production work happens has really changed. Advanced manufacturing is often different than things like textiles or furniture manufacturing in that those used to be really hands-on. Most and, and a lot of advanced manufacturing now is really mediated work where production workers are actually kind of behind a computer or they're behind a, a piece of technology where they're not actually hands-on working a machine, but they're, they're operating and overseeing a machine that's, that's producing something. Right. Those machines, as, you know, as new, new products come out, as things change, the actual intermediating machine or computer or software that they're working with changes as well pretty quickly. Right. A new product comes in, there might be a whole new kind of process that happens. And a learning curve to accompany it. Yeah, and and the initial learning curve as well, you know, especially as you kind of work to transition someone who has really kind of fit chairs together or something like that into into a position where they're doing something like computer numeric controlled laser cutting or something like that. So how did those behind the efforts there meet those challenges? 
You know, one of the things that they really did was, you know, they looked to change what people were learning. They did some things like teaching people basic CNC processing. But the, the big thing that they did was with a couple large federal grants for seed money as they actually worked with the training organizations to purchase the, the types of equipment that people would be expected to use in their jobs. So, you know, workers would go in for training and actually learn on the machine and the software that they would ultimately use in the jobs that they found. That made a big difference. I think that one of the challenges is is figuring out how you continue to, to keep the training equipment current with... Right with the equipment of today. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. How important is it for workforce development efforts to reach students versus people who are already in the workforce but have perhaps been displaced by economic disruptions? It might sound Darwinian, but do providers of workforce development see a benefit to reaching certain types of workers to better benefit employers? You know, it's a big it's a big question, and I think that one way of saying it is, is should programs focus on the unemployed or should they w- focus on the currently employed looking to move Right. On? The programs are really different, and I would actually, you know, one thing that I would say is that the people feel that feel uncomfortable about a program that's that only works with people already on the job is is really to just remind them of a concept of of a job chain. So. Let's just say that a worker is a a nursing assistant and they go into a training program and get additional skills and are able to become a a nurse themselves, a licensed nurse or on their way to being a registered nurse. Well, ultimately, they're going to leave a position and move up to one that's fitting of their new skills. Then that position will get filled by someone. um, And ultimately, uh, the hope is that it will reach down to someone who's unemployed. One of the benefits of working with people on the job is that there may be better employer buy-in, really, because they've already passed what might be thought of as kind of the employability test or the soft skills test. Right. Employers could invest in workers that they know have the right attitude and show up and have kind of the bedside manner that they need to do the job that they're doing. The soft skills we hear about. Exactly. Right. So – then you, you've really kind of narrowed it down to just a technical skills problem. Someone needs some additional training or a certification to have a different job. I think that that's really powerful. I think that what needs to happen then is that on, on the other end is that when you're working with unemployed workers, you need to be prepared to fill those jobs as they, as they come open to, to help complete that job chain so that it actually gets transitioned into a position for someone who is unemployed. And that really means focusing on the soft skills. It means focusing on even things like adult basic education for a lot of people. Right. To get them really kind of up to speed on on the basics. Sure. Stuart, in editing this book and observing numerous national as well as international approaches to workforce development, uh, you must have seen some common denominators among successful strategies. Uh, Could you discuss those common denominators? Sure. You know, I've, I've said it several times already, but employer engagement is, is really a key. I'd actually say that that's a principle, though, and not a tactic, because the cases show that employer engagement really plays out differently. The case on the Lancaster County, Pennsylvania WIB and the Burke, Berks County worked to build an alliance and training program to fit the needs of food processors. That actually turned out to be in industrial maintenance and actually helping to make sure that there were people there to keep 
the processing companies going when a when a machine faltered. Right. That was kind of what I would say is like a really traditional type of program that kind of built the alliance between employers. I think that the Cleveland one really is borne out differently um, with the WIB really working to help place people that have already gotten training and, and done specific things. So it can really, I, I would say it really plays out differently. In Nashville, it was kind of setting up that brain trust or advisory council. So it can be what, you know, really different. What I would actually say is that beyond that, what that means is that the principles include a strong connection to local challenges. In Cleveland, it was a little bit different in that there was kind of maybe a lack of communication between or understanding between job seekers and employers. Um, it means creativity and identifying the problems that need to be solved in the specific community. A close connection to the lo- local labor market then is, is really one of the key things and not getting stuck in what's always been done or the way that the organization has always worked. Cleveland was able to do kind of this really innovative approach using the same federal government source of funds that has always seen, you know, people have always complained is is not flexible, but they were able to do it. So I would say that, you know, thinking outside of the box and solving local employment issues is really the central thing. Right, right. Uh, Well, let's look at the converse for a second. Your book also discusses some instances when Workforce development efforts didn't uh, perhaps pay off as meaningfully as intended. When these efforts didn't quite pan out, are there reasons that are clear in hindsight and and thus inform the thinking behind future efforts? Well, I would say that actually most of these cases are are reactions to programs that that were not working as well as people wanted to. There's a case on the New York City Jobs Plus program, which was really a pilot program between public housing authorities and workforce development agencies and a lot of the wraparound services that that come with getting people that are unemployed into work and maintaining affordable housing. I think that what that case showed was that people were really kind of unhappy with the individual successes of the workforce development programs in New York or the housing public housing programs in New York and what they found was that by creating a much more comprehensive wraparound program, they they started to see much more successful programs. Instead of having a barrier when someone started to make so much money that they had to leave their affordable housing, right. they, they were able to pass pro- laws and policies that allowed people to stay where they were and kind of build assets and, and get training and, and, and better employment. It's led now to programs that are being replicated across the country, including in the Southeast. Because they were able to think comprehensively I'd say the program, the the previous programs that hadn't worked as well were too focused on, you know, kind of one line of service and one customer. That needs to be broader. Doing innovative things, thinking outside of the box and working with more people and organizations and agencies, job seekers, employers, finding more partners, not less, is is really key. The Southeast is attracting uh, more and more manufacturing employment, which implies the need for obviously, a capable workforce. For my last question, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot here, Stuart. Uh, What's your prediction for the future of workforce development in the Southeast? It's a good question. I think that, you know, the Southeast has got, it's it's a very dynamic area, and and it's it's very diverse, too. I would say that the challenges that uh, South Florida has are very different from the ones that we'd see in Eastern Tennessee. Now, what I think that that what that means is that as the 
economy really changes, it's going to play out differently. I would say that, uh, you know, some places are going to be dealing with preparing new residents and workers and, and people that are even new to the country to fit into a workforce that is kind of already moving and going along. And so there's going to be kind of a challenge between that. And I would say that as the economy continues to change, the type of work is going to change. We know that Chattanooga has had you know great advances in the technology that they have and the communications that they have, the broadband support that they have. And that's meant that there's kind of new opportunities that haven't been in the Southeast ever before. So I may be taking a long way of saying that I think that the Southeast is undergoing a lot of changes. It's starting to look very different than it ever has in the past, in some ways very different than the rest of the country, but in, in a lot of ways very much the same. We're seeing innovation, and that's going to mean completely new types of work, as well as very new types of people that are moving to the area. So it's going to be a, a challenge of matching those two things together. Right, right. Well, we'll have to get you back in the studio at some point to talk about how things evolve later on down the road. Uh, Stuart, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this episode of the Economy Matters podcast. Again, I'm Tom Heinches, and thanks for spending some time with us today. You can download a free electronic version of the book we've been discussing, Models for Labor Market Intermediaries, on our website at frblna.org. And I encourage you to get it. It's it's a multifaceted discussion of a, a timely and very important topic. And let's get together again next month. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. For more podcasts on this topic and others, please visit the Atlanta Fed's website at frbatlanta.org.